Would you turn in your Bibles to Psalm 67 if you are not already there? And let's pray one last time, asking for God's help. Heavenly Father, you are worthy of our praise as the sovereign Lord of this earth. We thank you and praise you that you have revealed yourself to us. We fail many times to give you the praise that is due to your name. Cleanse us of our pride, of our ignorance, of our apathy towards you. But Lord, as we come to your word and as we see something of your heart for all the nations and your desire to be praised among all peoples, might you open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. John Piper began his book on missions, and I put this quote uh, there for you in your outline because it has become uh, well known. He says this, Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity, but worship abides forever. And as we come to Psalm 67, which desires something of universal praise of of God, as it has a missionary bent that older writers have called this uh, psalm a missionary song, that it's appropriate to see that as we discuss missions this evening, that missions is not the ultimate discussion point. It's It's worship that's fundamental in missions. As we'll see, God is white-hot zealous for His praise. He's zealous for His praise among all the nations of the earth. And so as we approach Psalm 67, two realities by way of preface we must see. First is God's sovereignty over the nations and His concern for the nations. God is sovereign over the nations. In verse 4, our text says, You, Lord, judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations on the earth. Who is the universal judge of the earth? Who is the one leading and guiding all the nations? It is God. He is sovereign over the nations. He has created the whole earth. And therefore, He is worthy of all the praise of all the nations. And secondly, God is concerned for all the nations. And and it's striking to us that we're reading this text in the Old Testament, in, in the Psalms, that this text was produced out of Israel. And, and, it, and it shows us that we, we read the Bible incorrectly if we say, well, the Old Testament is, is only concerned about Israel. 
That God excludes all of the other nations and and He's only concerned about Israel. This psalm shows God is concerned for all the nations. The psalmist is asking that all the nations praise the Lord. And so as we'll see later on, that Israel had an important mission for how the nations were going to praise the Lord. But the goal of this psalm and the goal of the whole Bible is the universal praise of the Lord. So I think in order to understand this psalm, we're going to step back and we're going to see it in a whole Bible picture. We're going to look at it biblically, theologically, of how this psalm teaches us something about God's plan universally for the praise of the nations. And I want to approach this psalm under three headings, as you'll see in your handout. So the first heading here is the praiselessness of the nations. The praiselessness of the nations. Now, Microsoft Word says praiselessness is not a word, but I, I think... It fits, so we'll, we'll go with it. Central to this psalm is the worship of the nations. So you, we saw this in verses 3 to 5. Verse 3 and 5 are the same uh, sentence. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. It's the same in verse 5. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Its concern is that the nations praise God. And so there's six specific acts, aspects of the nation's ignorance of God in this text. And we see it by the way that the psalmist asks for petitions. He asks that God's way is known on the earth, his saving power. He asks that the peoples praise God. He asks that they be glad and sing for joy. So I take that to mean the, 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 the nations are ignorance of God's way. That your way may be known. What is the way of the Lord? Deuteronomy 10.12 tells us, And now, Israel, what does the Lord require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve Him, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul. The way of the Lord, His commandments, His statute, His, His worship. The, the psalm is praying, uh, is praying that the nations would know the way of Yahweh. They don't know the way of Yahweh. Verse 2, end of verse 2. They don't know His saving power. They don't know the salvation of the Lord. Verse 7 hopes that all the ends of the earth will fear Him, meaning that all the ends of the earth are not currently fearing the Lord. They don't know the fear of God. They don't know the joy of God. Verse 4 asks that the nations be glad. They don't know the song of Yahweh. He asks that they would sing for joy. And they fail to praise God, which he repeats often. Let the peoples praise you. So basically, this psalm is asking that all of the salvific benefits that Israel received would be extended to the nations. 
That they would know the way of Yahweh. That they would know His salvation. That they would know His joy, His song, His fear. That they would praise Him as Israel does. Which means that they are not currently praising Him as they should. So this is a prayer for all the nations. It's not just Israel's local neighbors. It's, this has a worldwide effect, great and small. It desires Yahweh to be worshipped by all. Which means that Yahweh, by and large, was not worshipped by the nations. So this is where we're going to step back and survey the Old Testament about the praiselessness of the nations. The nations quickly defected from the Lord. That we see after the the sin had entered the world, in Genesis chapter 3, Cain rebels against God's commands, kills his brother, is banished from the presence of the Lord. Cain's descendants build civilization, as we see, And then we get to Genesis 6, only two chapters away from that defection, and the whole earth is so rebellious against the Lord that he is ready to destroy it with a worldwide flood. This people was not that far from the original revelation of God in the garden. They, they weren't that far away to know about Adam and Eve and how, how they had walked with God in, in the garden and how their sin had separated them from God, but yet man needed to still call on God. On God. And yet so quickly, the whole world defects from Yahweh. And it doesn't get better as we go through Genesis. When we get to chapter 11, the whole world is united at the Tower of Babel to build this, this monument to heaven for their namesake. And, and God comes down and confuses their languages and spreads them throughout the earth. And we, and we know that they didn't take the worship of Yahweh wherever they were spread. Because as we meet nation after nation throughout the rest of the Bible, there is no fear of Yahweh by and large in these nations. That In the next chapter, chapter 12, Abraham is called, and we'll, we'll come back to that in a bit, but we, we know from Joshua, chapter 24, that God said, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. It's not like Abraham was part of this uh, Yahweh-seeking community. That his family, his father, worshipped other gods. The nations had, by and large, defected from, from Yahweh. So we're in Genesis chapter 12, and there, there is not a single nation. There is not a single unified people in all the earth that worships God. What great defectiveness and depravity of the nations. The, the very Creator 
is rejected outright by the nations. It gets worse as we go through Genesis. We, we come to, to Genesis 19, and, and, and Sodom and Gomorrah, all rampant sort of immorality and rebellious, so much so that God has to destroy uh, this place from heaven. We meet a character like Laban, and we know that he, he was not a worshiper of the Lord. Rachel steals the household gods from, from her father's house. That's just the book of Genesis. We see more broadly when we get to the, the Exodus and Moses goes to Pharaoh. Remember that Joseph was second in command in Egypt at some point in its history. And, and Moses says, let, let my people go that they may serve Yahweh, the Lord. And Pharaoh's response is, Who, who's Yahweh? Who's the Lord that I should obey his voice and let this Israel go? I do not know the Lord. This nation, despite its revelation of, of the one true and living God, in its midst rejects Yahweh. When the people of Israel enter the land of Canaan, we see all sorts of idolatry and horrible practices that, that were among the, the, the locals the Canaanites. I was thinking of when Assyria was attacking Jerusalem that the Rabshakeh's boast for, for King Sennacherib, what does he say as he, come, he comes to Jerusalem? Hezekiah's not giving in. And he says, Behold, You have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, devoting them to destruction. And you, shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them? The nations that my fathers destroyed? And he goes on to to list the nations. Have those gods done anything? Who is your God that's going to save you from the king of Assyria? So this... Major military power does not acknowledge Yahweh as the creator and worship him as they ought. And we see this with all the major empires from Assyria. We know this from Babylon. In fact, Babylon is this biblical, it becomes a metaphor. If anything, referring to Babylon is sort of the, the essence of human rebellion against God. This is Romans 1 playing out before our eyes in biblical history. That although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, exchanging the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than creator. Note the language of worship in Romans 1. They didn't worship Yahweh, they worshipped creation. 
So the, the universal defection of the nations are against Yahweh. They rejected the revelation of God. They served other gods. They don't praise Him. They don't know His salvation. They don't know His joy. They don't know the fear of the Lord. They only know His wrath. And this is true for civilizations, as we saw from from early civilizations down to our day. And throughout biblical history. There are a few Yahweh worshipers here and there in different nations that we may see as we read the Old Testament. But by and large, uh, it's, it was only in, uh, in Israel. This is a great rebellion against God. That All of these people who should be praising God are shutting their mouths to Him and worshiping something else. And our psalm wants us to think of this in the context of worship. And I think if we think of this in the context of worship, it, it, it grips us more emotionally. Think about worship. Think about what we do every week as we gather. It's quite ordinary looking. We come to this room. We sing songs. We read from a book. Someone stands up here and talks about this book. There's no flashy lights, smoke, loud acoustic guitars. There's no nice coffee bar here. There's no sleek poster boy pastor. But what glory we have when we worship. What joy. As we're brought from our sin and our selfishness and we're awakened to the reality of God and His salvation and His love for us in Christ, as we're caught up into those realities and the knowledge of God and the heavenly realities, what glory! What joy! Sometime pause and worship and just look around at what's going on. It's glorious. And, as, and then take that picture of here we are, worshiping the Lord, caught up in the love of God, and then all over the world there are entire people groups or, or majority of nations that don't know this reality. They walk in darkness and sin. As we experience the joy and rapture of worshiping God, entire nations are perishing without it. That should cause us to have a little heart check. Does your heart break for the lostness around you? We saw this in the Apostle Paul in in Romans 9. Despite the Jews' onslaught of him, his heart broke in anguish for their lostness. 
for the reality of their eternal souls without Christ. Paul saw this, and his heart broke. And, and that caused him to endure much suffering so that this gospel w- would come to them. And he, he hoped that they would believe. It's a model for us of the heart we should have. I remember reading of, of Martin Lloyd-Jones. Part of his call to ministry is for a period of time he, he had this constraint of spirit that he called. And he notes this. He said, I used to be struck almost dumb sometimes in London at night when I stood watching the cars passing taking people to the theaters and other places with all their talk and excitement, as I suddenly realized that what all this meant was that these people were looking for peace, peace from themselves. He paused and saw that these people are sort of distracting themselves because when they have time to sit and contemplate the nature of reality, they don't have peace. And that broke Lloyd-Jones because he knew, I, I have peace with God. And if you would know this gospel too, you can have peace with God. And that was part of the reason he, he gave up very successful medical career to be a preacher of the gospel. And that, we may not have a vocational change, but we should have the same constraint of spirit or the same brokenness that the Apostle Paul had as we look at the lostness around the world, as you see the, the depravity and spiritual blindness of our community and our nation and our world, that should cause your heart to break. The praiselessness of the nation. Secondly, the plan of redemption in the promises to Abraham. Amidst all this rebellion and defectiveness, God did not merely just sit back, as it were, and let the nations remain in their spiritual darkness. Woven into this biblical storyline of decline and defectiveness is a plan of redemption. That as we see the events unfold in Genesis chapter 4 and and beyond, before that, almost immediately after mankind's sin in Genesis 3.15, there is a promise that I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, Between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's coming someone from you, Eve, from your offspring that's going to defeat this this wicked uh, serpent and his ways. That despite your your sin and rebellion, I'm going to save And we're told in the end of chapter 4 in Genesis that at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. God did not have to be merciful to allow himself to be open to this rebellious people anymore. 
He could have destroyed them immediately. Yet God, God has a remnant. That yes, as God destroyed the world in a flood, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God spared him from that judgment and took him out. As the, as the nations are defecting from Yahweh, uh, Abraham is called out. And Abraham is given a promise in Genesis 12. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So here we have something significant that Abraham is told, I'm going to bless you, and it's through you that actually all the the families of the world are going to be blessed. And notice the connection between the Abrahamic promise and our psalm. The psalm says, bless us, God, in verse 1. Be gracious to us, Israel. Shine your face upon us. What's the purpose? Verse 2, that your way may be known on earth, your salvation among all the nations. Bless us so that all the nations are blessed. Just as you uh, said to, to Abraham that you will bless him and through him all the nations will be blessed. And in fact, this verse 1 is, is uh, almost exactly like the priestly blessing in, in Numbers 6. The Lord bless you and keep you, make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you, lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. So here is Israel consistent with the Abrahamic promise, asking God, bless us so that the nations may be blessed. Cause, cause your favor to, to come upon us that all the nations might have your favor. This is the, the direction that we see in verse 7. God shall bless us. And then I think instead of a petition, and maybe your Bible translates this, God shall bless us. And all the nations of the earth fear him. God bless us with the result that the nations then fear him. So how would Israel be a blessing to the nations? How is, how does God being gracious and blessing and making his face shine upon Israel cause his way to be known on the earth? His saving power among the nations. Well, it becomes clearer as the Old Testament unfolds, and as the a king is established, and and David is told of a of a of a king that is going to come, a Messiah that's going to reign. In Psalm two, we see that that this king is not going to just rule Israel. I'll make all the nations your heritage. That a Messiah was going to come and was going to rule the entire world in righteous judgment. But also that, as we read the Old Testament, a a, a suffering servant was going to come. 
that someone was going to come from Israel that's going to deal with sin, not just rain. He was going to die for the people, for their sins. And the Old Testament ends with this expectation that the Messiah would come. That when the Old Testament ends, the nations are by and large still defective from Yahweh. Israel itself is quite compromised, trying to recover from exile, from its own rebellion against God. But they have all of these promises that a Messiah would come. And God promised this. He had a plan of redemption, which leads us to our final point, the produce of praise, our current new covenant setting. Verse 6 says, the earth has yielded its increase. Maybe your Bible says, the earth has yielded its produce. The earth produced its harvest. So we're talking about the produce of praise here. So back to our biblical theological history. Old Testament ends. We're waiting the Messiah. And as the New Testament opens, Israel gives the nations a Savior. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. As Simeon is in the temple, we're told, in Luke chapter 2. And he is waiting. He's waiting uh, for the Messiah. And as he sees Jesus, and he takes him in his arms, he says, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. Simeon got it because he read the Bible. Here's the Savior. And he wasn't just going to save Israel, he was going to save the nations from their sins. And that's what Jesus does. He comes as the suffering servant. Doing what no one had done yet. Living a perfect life before God. Giving God the, the, the praise due to His name. And then offering Himself as a perfect sacrifice for sin. That we're told in the Gospels, that whoever believes in Jesus Christ will be saved. So, so Israel delivered the Messiah to the world. Israel functioned as a come and see nation. Israel was not a missionary nation. It, it didn't send out missionaries. It, didn't, it was not commanded to send out missionaries. It was supposed to stay put, be faithful, and that was to attract worship. Come and see. And that nation produces the Messiah. But that's changed. That has changed after the Messiah comes for God's people. Because what are Jesus' words, final words, 
to his disciples. In Matthew 28, go. All authority is given to me. Go make disciples of every nation. He doesn't say go make disciples in Jerusalem or go make disciples of Israel alone. Go make disciples of the nations. In Acts 1, we see something similar. Jesus says in Acts 1, they asked to receive, are we going to see the kingdom? That's, that's not for you. But you will receive power, Acts 1.8, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Notice the connection between this, this and our psalm. What is, what is the final verse of this psalm? Let all the ends of the earth fear your name. And Jesus says, go. Go to the ends of the earth. Why? Redemption has been accomplished. I have come. I have dealt with sin. I have purchased the people for God from every tongue, tribe, and nation. So go proclaim this gospel to the nations. The power is yours. Go. Reap the harvest. So where Israel was a come and see nation, the New Testament church is a go and tell people that We go out into the world. We go out into the nations to make disciples. And so after Jesus' work on the cross, we see the harvest of praise of the peoples being reaped in the New Testament. That what Psalm 67 was praying for, based upon the promises to Abraham, now we're beginning to see fulfilled, even as we read the book of Acts. So take the book of Acts. The the body of believers are a small Jewish body at the beginning of the book, and by the end of the book, it's an empire-wide, multi-ethnic church of thousands. So much so that you know, Paul finishes the book of Philippians. He says, uh, we greet you, the saints greet you, especially those from Caesar's household. The gospel had even penetrated into the household of the highest authority in the Roman Empire. In a very short time. The nations are praising God. It's increasing. We think of the progress of the gospel in the past 2,000 some years. The fact that we're sitting here. This isn't Jerusalem. This isn't Samaria. This isn't Judea. This is the ends of the earth in biblical perspective. English was not a language at the time of the New Testament. But by God's grace, through the work of Christ, the gospel made it here. Beginning clear back with Paul's visit to Macedonia. And as the gospel penetrated the Roman Empire and spread to Europe, came to America, and it's been here 
since its beginnings, and it's still here. The fact that if you're a believer tonight, you're a part of the reaping of the harvest of the praise of the peoples of the earth. So what began as some hundred Jewish individuals is now a global enterprise. On a weekly basis, Yahweh's name is praised and enjoyed in countless languages throughout the world. What began as a small group speaking Aramaic and or Greek to one another, now God's name is praised in countless languages, from English to Estonian, from Mandarin to Malayalam, Spanish to Swahili, French to Farsi, Greek, and even to German, Ukrainian to Urdu, Tamil to Turkish, Hindi to Hungarian, Arabic to Afrikaans. God's name is being praised among the nations. God's worship is being extended to the ends of the earth, as our psalm is saying. May the ends of the earth fear Yahweh. That people who for centuries walked in darkness without the knowledge of God are now worshiping the triune God. The psalm's prayer is being answered. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. And now we can look at the nations and say many peoples are praising God. I've recently watched a delivery to a the New Testament translation of the Bible to the Kimyal people in New Guinea, Indonesia. And they were flying the, the plane into this tribal area. And the whole tribe is coming out. Celebrating, making noise, dancing, praising God, praying to the Lord. This would have been people at the time of Christ would not have known the name of Jesus. Are now worshiping God. Thousands are experiencing the joy of Jesus in the world today as the gospel advances. Well, that's good. What does this have to do with us? Well, we as the church of Jesus Christ are given the great commission. It's been entrusted to us. So by way of brief application, there are three ways to be involved. One, and this is for all of us, we must pray for for that. Although the gospel has advanced greatly, there are still billions of people who, who in the world that don't have access to the gospel, which is strange, but there are so many variety of languages and cultures that require someone crossing that, learning the language, doing all of that difficult work to penetrate that community to bring the gospel. Jesus said, pray. Pray for for laborers. The, The field is ripe. So we must pray that the Great Commission is fulfilled. We must pray for the nations. 
Secondly, we must give to missionary efforts and work. And thirdly, maybe for some of us, maybe for you, you go. Praying for missions is not doing missions. Giving to missions is not doing missions. It does require people actually doing missions, which requires some people to leave their nation, leave their comforts, leave their communities, and and go to a, a nation unknown, in an unknown language, in an unknown culture, and bring the gospel and plant churches and see it ripe. So let's pray that in some way, one day, maybe even we have tangible feet from our midst here that God would raise up to reap the harvest of Jesus' work among the nations. So that we, we all uh, can, can... And what, what, what gives someone a motivation to do such a radical thing? Why would you do that? Well, we know God's, God has commissioned some to do that. And God has promised to fulfill that, that we go to the nations knowing Jesus purchased a people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. That as we see in, in Revelation chapter 7, John says, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. That's the end. That God will have His people reaped from all of the nations, but the means is us taking that gospel Uh, to the nations. And so we must pray, uh, we must give, and if God calls, uh, we must go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can be here tonight and for many of us call on your name as our Heavenly Father that through your Son we have come to know you in a saving way. We thank you that your sovereign grace has worked this in our lives, in our hearts. If there is someone in this room of whom does not know Christ as their Savior, you might work this grace in their hearts. But Lord, we do echo the prayer of this psalm that all the nations would praise you, that the nations would be glad and sing for joy as we look at the landscape of even our nations, our own nation. And as the world at large, Lord, might you advance the cause of your gospel in the world. Raise up laborers, even from our very midst, to take this gospel to the nations. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.